Welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. I'm your host, Chris Fernandez-Packham. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's show, take a minute to leave a review on iTunes and subscribe or get in touch with me using email at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. On with the show. Here we are. The show is now one year old. I can't believe how fast the time has gone. Doing this show has honestly been one of the best things in my life and one of my proudest achievements. A lot of people told me before I started that it wouldn't work, I wouldn't have time, no one would be interested in the Victorians, or I should wait until I retired. But I channeled my inner Victorian and said, hang it all, I can't wait 35 years, the Victorians need a show now. And of course, the show hasn't got to Victoria yet. In the last year, we've learned a lot about the Napoleonic Wars. This is a fundamental building block of understanding the Victorian world. This, the Congress of Vienna, and a few other great events were what set the stage for the Victorians. What an incredible journey it has been. In future, we will move around the world even more. Meet Victoria herself, do some joint episodes with other podcasters, and plenty more. Along the way, I've learned some amazing things. The biggest lesson this podcast has taught me is that reality is always far more complicated than we think. Or at least, very different. I have been happily reading up on Queen Victoria recently, as we are moving on from the Napoleonic Wars in the main show, and I came across some trivia that I found interesting. Victoria's mother was a German princess, and her beloved governess was also German. So Victoria actually only spoke German until she was three, and German continued to be a favoured language in private when she was older. I find it amusing, as she is, of course, the poster child being quintessentially English, but she was actually half German. It is interesting as a podcaster to see how much of our modern view of history is just a myth or a projection of our own views, or just down to pure ignorance. Other fantastic things I've learnt in my reading is the astonishing growth of small towns during the Victorian age into vast cities. Often, these were basically English and Welsh boom towns, often built by the Irish. They grew out of nothing, around a small industry, and then became huge. Now, in modern Britain, the reasons for their original existence have long gone, and they cling on to a precarious existence often full of proud, hard-working people who have watched as the jobs and industries have drained away. The great Victorian buildings of their ancestors have become derelict or been turned into apartments or wine bars. 
I was also amazed by reading about Victoria's childhood through the eyes of her servants. I was lucky enough to hear the wonderful historian Kate Williams give a talk on Victoria's childhood. You should read Kate's book. Seriously, she is awesome. So, I would like to say some huge thank yous. First, with my wife, for putting up with my constantly growing library and my mutterings about scripts and hosting. My lovely friends, who have kindly said things like, I'm not leaving a review for you, I'm busy. Anyway, it's your turn in D&D, so get on with it whilst I'm having my burger. Thanks guys. And of course, my parents, for teaching me that intellectual curiosity counts for more than anything else in life, and for letting me study philosophy at university, rather than anything remotely practical. The support of the podcast community has been astonishing. There are so many podcasts I've listened to, learned from, or been supported by. Firstly, Jamie Zern from the British History Podcast. Without him, I would not have launched, or have got to the level of quality that I think I have. So thank you. Zach Tramley from When Diplomacy Fails is eternally optimistic and great to chat to. Sean Warswick from the American History Podcast and Jack from Ancient Greeks Declassified put out some high quality shows and are great to talk to. Other favourites of mine. Other favourites of mine have been the history of witchcraft and I'm lucky enough to have found not one but two great Viking podcasts. Noah at the History of Vikings podcast and Lee at the Viking Age podcast. Keep knocking them out. They're great. Seriously, I could list great podcasts all day. But I've also been so lucky with my listeners. I've had such great support and great conversations with them, especially Melissa, Yosef, Rob and so many others. Yosef especially has donated, supported and trusted that I would stick around past episode 4 to grow this into a long-term podcast. That's still the plan. Thank you everyone for listening. I really appreciate the reviews and having you spread the word on Facebook and Twitter. And I just love talking to you guys and girls. So thank you. I've had some great questions from listeners. I don't have time to do all of them. So I picked out some that are particularly interesting. Bill has asked, obviously, it's from the wrong nation. But who would you put on the Mount Rushmore of Victorians? That's such an awesome question. Mount Rushmore is pretty fantastic in its own right. It is a monument that will probably outlast the human race itself. Who to put on a Victorian Mount Rushmore is a tricky one. Let's assume it is to be carved into the highlands of Scotland. That's probably the only place we could have it in the UK. Sadly, the white cliffs of Dover are just too soft. It would erode away far too quickly, but who to put on? Queen Victoria herself would naturally have said Prince Albert. I've got huge admiration for Albert, who is a thoroughly underrated guy and perhaps could have been one of Britain's greatest rulers. So we've got one face, Prince Albert. Her Majesty was doubtless most flattered when the scheme was presented to her, 
on the basis that it will be a monument to her beloved and much-missed Albert by a grateful nation, and she fully expects the other choices to reflect her own dear one's gifts. I think I would absolutely have to go with Isambard Kingdom Brunel. If one individual is the poster child for the Industrial Revolution and the most recognisable Victorian, apart from the Queen herself, then it has to be him. That's two spaces filled. Next up has to be Ada Lovelace. Without her, who knows if the computer revolution would have happened as soon as it did. She can legitimately claim, along with Babbage, to have helped give birth to the computer age. So she deserves a spot for changing the destiny of humanity. The last spot is desperately hard to choose. So many candidates. But I think it has to go to Charles Darwin. He explained the mechanism for how species changed over time. And his theory of evolution, when properly understood, changed the world. Listener Sean Warswick and host of the Fantastic American History podcast has asked, what's the hardest thing about doing a podcast and the most surprising? The hardest thing is the editing. Hands down. Research is fine. Writing the script is actually seriously enjoyable and I love recording and the editing is just hell. I try really hard to make sure none of you have to sit through my coughs, lip smacks or breathing. It is totally worth it though when the show goes out and I get an email or an IM saying a listener enjoyed it or has questions. The most surprising thing is really hard to pick. History is endlessly surprising. That's why we love it. I think I was most surprised learning about Annie Besant, who is just my idol. And, in my view, far more deserving of that statue than Millicent Fawcett. The whole thing about Fossey Jaw and the strike and the matchstick industry was an eye-opener. I was most surprised by how little is actually known by most people about such an amazing event. Sean also asks, what's been your favourite book you've read so far? Well, I'm, I'm assuming we're going to stick to history here. And again, a huge amount of choice. Jared Diamond's Collapse is certainly great to read, if somewhat controversial. I think my absolute favourites have to be Wellington's Doctors by Dr Martin Howard and Disease and the Modern World 1500 to the Present Day by Mark Harrison. There is nothing that brings home human fragility like reading about medicine and disease. If anyone ever asks, would you like to have lived in the Victorian era? The answer is no. And these books hammer home why. I've also had a great question from Zach, host of When Diplomacy Fails. I've heard it said that Elmut's death made Victoria more amenable to imperialism and national honour in particular. Do you think there's any truth to this? Or was Vicky always going to turn out a certain way? This is, this is just brilliant. And actually, if I'm honest, this is an idea for a show topic or even three or four episodes on it. It is so hard to answer quickly. It deserves research. And that's important because I've always made it clear I'm not a professional historian. 
so I rely on the opinions and research of the professionals. I honestly haven't done enough research on this to be able to give you the expert's view. I'm going to give you my own view at the moment based on what I've read about Victoria so far from various sources. This might well change when we revisit the topic, so take it with a pinch of salt for now. I think Victoria was always going to be slightly imperialistic. When she became queen, Britain had an empire, even if it was somewhat disparate, and in some ways slightly on the decline. Victoria was always aware of royal dignity and became a bit fixated on British superiority. This isn't uncommon with a lot of royalty in many nations. But the big difference was that as the Victorian age went on, Britain assumed a position of global supremacy in so many areas, often by ruthless wars. In the pre-Indian mutiny era, it seemed natural to most British that they were more civilised and better than most nations and therefore were required to rule to help the less developed nations improve themselves with various governments or governors adopting more or less aggressive attitudes to expansion. In the post-mutiny era, the attitude shifted from the idea of a civilising mission to a burden of ruling dangerous, savage peoples who couldn't be trusted with self-rule. And this is very much a strand you can see under Kipling. Under this latter outlook, even more aggressive imperialism was inevitable. I think that the saying, it is better to be misruled by your own people than well governed by another nation, is not something that would have made sense to a Victorian ruler. To them, it was good governance and the outcome that counted. Both of these attitudes, and many more besides, were much criticised, even in the Victorian era itself. Never mind the criticism of later historians and authors. After all, who decides what good governance or civilization really is? Please understand, I'm not in any way passing judgment on many complex issues and events, just trying to give you a very brief flavour of the political outlook of the time. It is impossible to say that the highly status-conscious Victoria wouldn't have had a highly stratified worldview with her sitting at the top. But she seemed to view it as a matriarchal position. Victoria was offered the title of Empress of India by Disraeli in 1877, for instance. She didn't ask for it or the Koinor diamond. That was gifted to her by the East India Company after it had acquired it. Victoria was uncomfortable with the gift and her comments about it are telling. Quote, no one feels more strongly than I do about India or how much I opposed our taking those countries and I think no more will be taken for it is very wrong and no advantage to us. You know also how I dislike wearing the Koh-i-Noor. End quote. She clearly supported military actions during Albert's life and after he died. Albert was involved in the recutting of the Koh-i-Noor and he seems to have been active in designing uniforms for the British Army. He was 
probably pretty pro-British, but pragmatic about British conflicts. His intervention probably prevented war between Britain and the USA during the Trent Affair in 1861. He opposed the starting of the Crimean War vigorously, but once it was inevitable, he and Victoria publicly supported Britain staunchly. Victoria was highly conscious of her royal dignity and insisted on personally signing army commissions, even as her health failed. She seems to have considered them her army. In her early reign, she was very focused on the outcomes, and if the government had thought them through, worrying about the consequences of war. She said, for instance, to the Foreign Secretary in 1856, The Queen wishes to ask, before she sanctions this draft, whether the Cabinet have fully considered the consequences of this declaration to the Persians, which may be war, and if so, whether they are prepared to go to war with Persia, and have provided the means of carrying it on. End quote. She tried to understand Indian culture, and was happy to have Indian staff, especially Abdul Karim, the Munshi, who was so close to her in later life. I think, therefore, there's a lot of evidence that goes one way or the other, but the answer is probably she would have been less imperialistic if Albert had lived, since he was a restraining influence on everyone. But that doesn't mean the British in general, or the British ruling class, would have acted all that differently. As I say, it was an incredibly complicated age, with consequences that reverberated round the world, and still influence events today. I'm going to leave you with one of my favourite Victorian poems. It was written by a Victorian physicist, William Rankin, and shows that wonderful breadth of interest characterised the Victorians, a physicist and a poet. Quote, The Mathematician in Love A mathematician fell madly in love with a lady young, handsome and charming. By angles and ratios harmonic he strove her curves and proportions all faultless to prove, as he scrawled hieroglyphics alarming. Let X denote beauty, Y manners well-bred, Z fortune, this last is essential. Let L stand for love, our philosopher said, then L is a function of X, Y and Z, of the kind which is known as potential. Now integrate L, with respect to DT, T standing for time and persuasion, then between proper limits tis easy to see the definite integral marriage must be a very concise demonstration. Said he, if the wandering course of the moon by algebra can be predicted, the female affections must yield to it soon, but the lady ran off with a dashing dragoon and left him quite amazed and afflicted. End quote. 